Welcome to the History Guy podcast, the podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel, and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of The History Guy is sponsored by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service dedicated to bringing you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, we have two stories about rare animals and how their stories tie into human history. First is the story of Pear David's deer, an odd-looking deer native to China that nearly went extinct more than once and is now flourishing today thanks to an English duke. Then we have the story of Sir Harry Johnston and the 20th century discovery of the animal that bears his name, Okapi Johnstoney. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. According to Chinese legend, when the tyrant King Qin of the Shang ruled over China some 3,000 years ago, a horse, an ox, a donkey, and a deer went into a cave to meditate. When the tyrant king had one of his advisors executed, the four came out and transformed into humans in order to spy on the king, and seeing his heinous acts, decided that they wanted to punish him. But he was very powerful. And so they transformed themselves into one animal that had the speed of a horse, the strength of an ox, the keen sense of direction of a donkey, and the agility of a deer, and they headed off to the Kunlun Mountains to seek the advice of the primeval lord of heaven. Upon seeing the animal, which had the face of a horse, the antlers of a deer, the hooves of an ox, and the tail of a donkey, the Lord was astonished and gave the creature the name Sibu Yang, which meant the four unlikes, meaning that it was unlike any of the other four animals. Today that animal is called the Milu, and it has a history that is almost as remarkable as the legend. The strange and still evolving history of Pear David's deer deserves to be remembered. Fossil records suggest that the Milu first appeared during the Pleistocene period as far back as two and a half million years ago. Native to river valleys, the species grazed on grass and aquatic plants. During the Pleistocene, the species was found throughout what is modern-day Manchuria in northeast China, but during the following Holocene period, the species' demography changed, and it became common to low wetlands and swamplands in southern China. The Milu is the sole surviving member of the genus Elephorus, a genus which the fossil record suggests at one point included at least five other species that roamed areas of what are today China, Japan, and Taiwan. The species was once both widespread and plentiful, according to a 2018 article in the magazine China Today. Archaeological evidence from as far back as 10,000 years ago suggests that milu bones were found in similar numbers to those of farm pigs, meaning that it was a common source of food. Inscriptions on bones from the Qin dynasty some 3,000 years ago record 348 milu deer caught in a single hunt, suggesting there was a large population. It was also during this period that the Milu became part of Chinese mythology with the legend of the four animals. According to the legend, related in the 16th century AD Chinese work Investiture of the Gods, the primeval lord of heaven gave the creature permission to overthrow the king, and a noble named Zheng Ziya rode the creature in the 1046 BC Battle of Mu, where the king was overthrown. It was as early as the following dynasty, the Zhou, that the Chinese royal court established an imperial zoo that included free-ranging birds and animals, including Milu deer. 
The animals were kept in imperial parks as high-status animals and sources of royal venison. As a legend arose, perhaps derived from the previous legend of the four animals, that the Milu was a magical creature, and hunting and eating its flesh would grant the emperor eternal life. It's not really clear how those herds would have been maintained over multiple dynasties and hundreds of years, but there is a record that soldiers of the Yuan dynasty in the 13th century AD herded several Milu to a preserve near the new imperial capital, what is modern-day Beijing, for the royal family to hunt for sport. It's not really clear where those animals would have come from, but whether they were the descendants of royal herds that had somehow been maintained for more than 2,000 years, or whether they had some other source, there's speculation that the species was already going extinct in the wild. Hunting likely played a role, but the general theory is that the species' demise over the period was mostly due to habitat destruction. The wetlands, where the animal thrives, are ideal land for farming rice, and as the human population grew and expanded, the species was lost along with its habitat. Although there is a great deal of disagreement over exactly when the milu went extinct in the wild, it is clear that by the time a more than 200 square kilometer imperial hunting ground along the Yongdin River near what is today Beijing was created by, sources disagree, either the 15th century Ming Dynasty or the 17th century Qing Dynasty, the species was either gone or on the brink of extinction in southern China, and the imperial herd was thought to have represented the last of the Milu deer. And that preserve still existed in the time of the Tongzi Emperor, who ruled from 1861 to 1875. And despite hundreds of years of contact with Imperial China, it appears that Westerners had still never yet seen a Milu. Jean-Pierre Armand David was born in the French Pyrenees in 1826. His father was a doctor with an interest in the natural scientists, an interest that his son seems to have inherited. Like many younger sons of established families, Jean-Pierre sought a life in the clergy, joining the then newly established order, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. He became a teacher and well-known naturalist, and when in 1862 he was sent by the order on a mission to convert Chinese to Catholicism, he was also tasked to collect specimens for the Museum of Natural History in Paris. Over several expeditions, he collected a huge amount of samples of animals and plants, many of which had never been described by Western science, including 63 species of wild animals and 65 species of birds that were hitherto unknown in the West, as well as numerous species of moths and insects. Among his most spectacular findings was an animal skin collected in 1869 that was the first Western discovery of a giant panda. In 1865, Father David was near Beijing when he discovered the wall that protected royal hunting grounds. But the grounds were off limits. Sources disagree. Some say he was simply able to find a spot where he could peer over the wall. Others say he was able to sneak a peek at a spot where the wall was being repaired. But he managed to see inside a deer that looked something like a reindeer, but was clearly something different. And something he had never seen before. According to Jane Goodall's 2009 book, Hope for Animals in Their World, Father David went to Beijing to seek more information about the animals, but wasn't able to find anything out about them, and so he returned back to the wall with an interpreter, and for a gift of some woolen hats and gloves, convinced the guards to give him two pelts and some antlers. Pere David sent the samples back to Paris, where they were examined by the renowned zoologist Henri Milne Edwards in 1866. Milne Edwards identified the sample as representing a previously undescribed species, and named them in the priest's honor, Pear David's deer. 
The discovery created something of a sensation in Europe, and as it was a time when the Chinese dynasty was trying to improve relations with Europeans, several European delegations were able to use diplomacy, although some argue there were also some illegal means like bribery used, to acquire several live specimens which were displayed in zoos throughout Europe. By the mid-1880s there were some two dozen or so of the deer in Europe, including at the English Bedfordshire estate of Herbrand Russell, the 11th Duke of Bedford. The pair David's deer is unique in many ways. Science writer Darian Nash wrote in an October 2011 blog post in Scientific American called The Seemingly Endless Weirdosity of the Milu that Pear David's deer is pretty weird looking. It has a very large deer with highly pronounced sexual size dimorphism. It has an especially long snout with a superficially cow-like face that appears to be peculiarly flat dorsally. Its hooves are especially large and seemingly not well suited for movement on hard ground, one of several features indicating specialization for life in wet, swampy grassland. Its tail has a tassel at the end and is the longest of any deer. It has a shaggy coat, with long guard hairs being present throughout the year. The Mila's coat is ochre to reddish tan colored in the summer, and in winter becomes woollier, changing to duller gray, with the undersides a bright cream color. Along the shoulders and down the spine is a darker stripe, with a mane at the neck and throat. But the royal herd, which by some accounts might have persisted as long as a couple of thousand years, was about to see disaster. In 1894 and 95 there was flooding along the Yongding River, and it washed out some of the walls protecting the garden. It's possible some of the animals drowned in the flood, but much of the herd escaped, where they were promptly killed and eaten by people who were starving as a result of the damage done by the flood. Only about 30 of the animals were left inside the garden. Then in 1900, during the multinational response to the anti-Christian uprising called the Boxer Rebellion, the garden and palace were occupied by soldiers from the German Empire, who, it appears, killed and ate the remaining animals from the herd, although some sources claim that some specimens remained in the Beijing Zoo until 1922. Suddenly the herd that had preserved the species for so long was gone. The species was thought to have become extinct in its native land, something called extirpation, and the only known examples left were in Europe. According to a 2017 paper published by the Royal Society, hearing the news of the loss of the herd at the Royal Hunting Gardens, the Duke of Bedford, who was a soldier and a politician but also a renowned zoologist who would eventually become president of the Zoological Society of London, realized that the small populations of deer in various European zoos were too small to create breeding populations, and so convinced the other zoos to sell him their specimens in order to preserve the species. By 1901, the entire population, just 18 animals, only 11 of which were capable of reproducing, were removed to the Duke of Bedfordshire's estate called Woburn Abbey. The Duke was concerned with animal preservation and played important roles in the preservation of the European bison and the Himalayan tar. According to Jane Goodall, Pear David's deer in the deer sanctuary at Woburn Abbey did well, and the herd had expanded some 90 animals by 1915. But the Great War brought supply shortages, especially shortages of fodder, and the Duke had difficulty supplying his wild deer collection. The herd reduced to just 50 animals. The species recovered between the wars, but faced risks again during the Second World War, when not only was there another shortage of fodder, but there was risk from nearby bombing. The 11th Duke's son, Hastings William Sackville Russell, the 12th Duke of Bedford, realized that the entire species could be killed by a single errant bomb and so he started sending specimens to zoos around the world. By 1970, Goodall noted that there were breeding groups of Pear David's deer in centers all over the world, with over 500 at Woburn Abbey alone. 
Pear David's deer can now be found in numerous zoos and preserves. You might well have seen them yourself. Every single one in every single zoo is a descendant of the original 11 animals acquired by Herbrand Russell. In 1955, the first attempts were made to reintroduce the Milu to China, but early attempts failed, with the animals either dying during transportation or being unable to successfully reproduce. There were only seven animals in China in 1979, not enough to have a successful breeding program. It was through the efforts of the 14th Duke that in 1985, 22 animals were sent to reestablish the species in its native China. The park to which they were taken was once an area covered by the royal hunting grounds. Goodall describes the effort made to provide a suitable habitat, assisted by a Slovakian zoologist named Maha Boyd. The process was complicated, required that a heavily polluted creek be blocked off and the lake be refilled with clean water provided by springs. Further efforts have increased the species' worldwide population above an estimated 5,000, with some 2,500 in three preserves in China, and around 700 now thriving in the wild. The survival of the Milu, which is so remarkable because the species faced extinction so many times because of events in human history, has recently been called into question. First of all, there's some stories that Milu were killed in the wild as late as 1939. But there's also been some recent research on a couple of pelts that were acquired from Hainan Island, an island off the southern coast of China, in 1869. Those pelts were originally listed as Eld's deer, but it's long been suspected that they were actually Pear David's deer. And genetic tests on the nearly 150-year-old pelts in 2017 determined that not only were they Pear David's deer, but they were genetically so similar to the deer that Pear David found in the Royal Hunting Gardens that it now seems likely that those deer in the Royal Hunting Gardens were not the survival species of some 2,000-year-old royal herd, but in fact were sourced from Hainan Island. And if that's true, that means that there was a wild population of Milu, even in Pear David's time, although the story was that they were rare on the island at the time and probably went extinct shortly thereafter. And if all that's true, it does change the long-told story about the survival of Pear David's deer, but it's really no less remarkable that the species could survive for some 2,000 years on a tiny island on the fringe of its habitat than it is that it could survive as part of a royal herd. And regardless of when the species went extinct in China, all the Pear David's deer alive today came from the Duke of Bedford's herd. And their survival is, is so unlikely that it's really, it's really as unbelievable as the story that an ox, a horse, a deer, and a donkey went into a cave and came out a wholly different animal. Sometimes history is, well, just as good as legend. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy about what we just listened to, what we're going to listen to, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. The story of the Milu is practically an epic, covering some 5,000 years and approaching extinction multiple times. Uh, certainly the story has plenty of twists and turns and moments of true uncertainty. One of the things that's so great about this episode is that that's one of the incredible things about true stories of history, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think we say all the time on the channel, history, you know, stranger than fiction. If you wanted to, you know, create a story of an animal and, and how an animal would be preserved, who, what storyteller would think this up? You know, that it lived maybe in a, in a royal garden for 4,000 years and no one else had seen it, or it was, you know, way out on the fringe on some island somewhere and no one knew that it was there. And that's an incredible story. Uh, you see that a lot in history, but it's really interesting here for, for this animal. And it does make you wonder what else is still out there uh, because of the way that this one managed to survive. And I mean, it should have been gone. It's, it's really a creature of the Ice Age that's still around. 
yeah, if this could survive all this time and be, uh, despite, it, I think it would have gone extinct probably without human intervention. Now, on the other hand, human intervention might also have helped cause its extinction. That's kind of one of the interesting pieces about this one. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, there was habitat destruction, yes. which happens all the time. Habitat destruction and significant hunting, yeah. and, I mean, over different periods. And, and it thrives today in the wild so maybe without human intervention it would be would be doing fine in the wild i don't know but the fact that it pushed out to a fringe that it was only on a small island somewhere uh, suggests that this this creature very much could have gone extinct if it hadn't been preserved in the uh, you know by royal decree because someone thought that if you if you ate it it would make you live forever so i mean it's really strange how that occurs uh, and it's not you know it's not the only creature on earth that uh, is is only alive because people decided that they had value of it and they kept it going yeah. you know beyond its, its habitat, but th it's just a, it's a strange, crazy story, and it, it's really a, a fun story because of that. Because you just you, you couldn't make up a story better than the story. And now, I, I mean, I think I've seen. I'm pretty sure I've seen them in in zoos, and it's it's incredible that mm -hmm. something that we could have so easily lost, and that was so much more rare than say other and like the passenger pigeon. Uh, that has that went extinct mm -hmm. despite being you know having so many yeah is that something that was probably fairly rare throughout most of human history ha that we can still see it in zoos all over the world now and that's just an incredible it's kind, yeah. of, kind of an incredible and, connection. especially since it it was down to i think you know was it nine or eleven actual eleven you know, animals that, yeah at some point yeah uh, that were that could breed and now now you can find it in zoos and i've seen it in zoos and honestly the way i heard about it i think was reading it on a sign at the zoo and that's where i went and did the research on it's it incredible and there's wild populations now and that's that's absolutely extraordinary and the story that it was preserved just on a deer preserve in england it was threatened twice by the world wars that you know it lived through all it lived through it was almost killed because it was in england during the world wars uh, and uh, i mean it's just it's an incredible story and it's a, it's a story of survival that's ex, you know that's absolutely amazing that now there are wild herds of these running around they're incredible to watch as wild herds too because they uh, you know they're they're almost semi-aquatic yeah and so they uh, the way that these things move through the water and stuff i mean they'll just run and they just run as smoothly through a lake wow. as they run on land and they're just amazing, amazing yeah they're very animals. interesting uh, and creatures it is and and they they play such an interesting role in i mean they touch so many pieces of history their their discovery is history itself it talks about the history of the west as it connects to china uh, and there's just there's there's great story there too that uh, it would have been i mean that here's this animal unique to China that would have gone extinct were it not for Europeans who had gotten the animal when they weren't even supposed to uh, and then managed to preserve the animal through you know what had gone on. Uh, and it's one of those places where you, you, natural history and history touch in such an interesting way because the history of its natural history as it connects to human history is all an interesting story. Yeah, it was really a, a joy of an episode to write. It reminds me of the story of the, the Burman cats which also yeah. survived through a war and were nearly extinct and uh, we're nearly extinct. Only two of them got out. One of them yeah. died. And they thought was the end of it. <laughs> and somehow they've the other one turned out to be pregnant. They've yeah. managed to continue to have a whole, to, you know, to have a whole breed. And so it's it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We, we should we, we we need to do an episode on that sometime, especially since we've known a couple yeah, of, no. a couple of troublemaking Burmans in our they life. They were lovely were, cats uh, too. Characters, yeah, um, beautiful and crazy. But you know, I did I did love how in this episode you connected uh, the beginning and the end and kind of throughout a little bit. Uh, the connection to this legend that this is four random animals connected to each other, which sounds as ridiculous as really 
almost any myth I've ever heard. But it's when you compare it to the actual absurdity of the story, it's it's really interesting to see that oh, it's yeah. it's very different, but it's also like wow. It's uh, also just how do you, how would you believe that story? Yeah, I you know as as myth goes, I mean you know myth is it's it's an interesting explanation. I mean this is really a creature from another time. It was a creature that that had evolved to the ice age and, and lived in a different part of China. And as as the climate changed in China, it moved into a different habitat. So you can you can see why. Someone could write a myth about why you have this very strange-looking deer, uh, which which actually it looks a lot like like the the wapiti, the North American elk that we see here. But I mean, it's it's kind of a funny-looking animal. So you can see how it come to that myth. Uh, and I love the idea that that some guy, some general rolled one of rode one of these into battle and overthrew the evil the evil king. I wondered uh, if anyone. I, I don't know that they would. Have we actually tried to ride one since? That's the. <laughs> I I hope not. No, I think that would probably be animal cruelty if you're trying to hop on one. I don't know that you can saddle one up. So. So the legend is really interesting because you can see how someone, you know, Homer-esque writing legends could come up with some sort of explanation for why you have this animal that, that really does look peculiar. It looks out of place. Uh, and then that, how that whole legend might be part of what saved the animal because yeah. then it gets this, you know, legendary reputation. That's a reason that they would save it in, in the, the, the royal menagerie, which might have kept it alive for, yeah. you know, millennia. So that, it's really an extraordinary story. Yeah. That's essentially the what, kind of what I was wondering was like, is the strangeness of this animal the fact that it was both the myth but the fact that it was such a it is kind of a weird looking creature did that help it survive i you know i think so i mean i think because it was unique because it was seen as rare and and really seen as legendary uh, I think there's probably reasons when you're talking about its protection and whether whether it was in the Royal Menagerie for four millennia like they talk about or whether it was just in the Royal Menagerie for the last hundred years of its existence when it was going extinct on a, on a barrier island, uh, that I think that unique uh, appearance of it, the fact that no one else had anything like that is part of why it was preserved. I think that's part of why it ended up being preserved in zoos elsewhere. Uh, so, yeah, I do. I think it ended up in the end serving the, the Milu, the Pear David's deer, that it was so unique, so rare, such an odd bird uh, that it was a novelty that people wanted to save and, and managed to save. I think we, we can be grateful to, I mean, a lot of people uh, for having been able to keep it to the, the modern day so that we can see this animal. So that we can see, and who, who to, especially at the time. Well, yeah. I mean, the, last, the last substantial herd that was there in the menagerie was eaten by Germans during the Boxer <laughs> Rebellion. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, yeah, the the flood took out the walls, and then people were hungry, so they yeah. ate the ones that got out, and then the Germans came and ate the ones that were left. <laughs> and uh, it's all crazy, but it, it that there are people who saw it and knew it was unique and knew it was special, uh, and who were able to preserve it. Uh, you know, it's it's all it's all just amazing. It's you you just couldn't imagine that that would happen. And and you you know you keep thinking you're going to hit this point and that's it. Yeah. Uh, and instead we hit that point and there's 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 probably more of them than there has been since yeah. you know thousands of years. There's plenty of animals that didn't didn't manage to do that. Yeah. A good example of these stories about how you know humans can do good. I think we get a lot of focus, and I'm not saying it's not you know fair to say about what human destruction has done but i think uh, i was kind of thinking of like ned mcelhenny uh, who we did an episode mm -hmm. on who saved the snowy egrets is that the, you know, egrets, the, yeah. the duke of bedford also was able to do this and essentially mm -hmm. i mean it, people bring it up in the right that you know having the wealth and the land helps but this is something that essentially you know specific people in history were able to make rather enormous contributions by just caring yeah. 
Well, I mean, we have a lot of stories that talk about the potential for good in humans. I mean, I, you know, history is, is very varied and horrible things happen and great things happen and people do horrible things and people do great things. And this is an interesting example because if you think about, you know, Pear David himself, uh, I, was he, you know, was he just trying to self-aggrandize? I mean, he, he you know, he, he traded some gloves so he could look over the wall and then he sees the steer. And I mean, it's all, it's all a very peculiar story. Uh, but in the end, you know, it's his scientific interest that is the reason the West knows about it. And in the end, that ends up preserving the deer. Yeah. You know, they, were, they, they had that deer behind walls because they didn't want the West to see it. And in the end, the West is the, are the ones that are able to bring it back to the... And interesting that that preserve now is in the same spot where the, the, uh, the menagerie was. So now, you know, the, the West yeah. brought it back. Uh, all a cool story. But, I mean, it's, there's different people in there. They kind of had different motivations. But, yeah, the, the, you know, the Duke of Bedford had this estate, and he was very interested in preserving animals. And if you're going to be, you know, wealthy and have the room for an estate, I mean, you might as well have a good purpose for it. He was also instrumental in saving the European bison. Uh, and did some other, you know, uh, I mean, he, he understood that, that there were species on the brink and he did yeah. what he could to preserve that. So that, that point where they found out that the, that the herd that was in China had been lost uh, and that he realized that there was probably a viable herd in Europe, but only if you got them all together, that no one had a breeding population uh, and that he managed to get that done and that the zoos all over Europe uh, agreed with that and moved, you know, their very rare animal there to create this breeding population. It's a great story. It's a story about uh, how humans can preserve the natural environment, how we can work together with the natural environment, but also how we can destroy the natural environment. It's all there's there's so much that works into it. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode of the podcast, and as always, we'd really like to thank them for making this podcast possible and for sponsoring both this and many of our episodes on the channel. As listeners know, we really, really like Magellan TV, and so here we are again. What have you been watching on Magellan TV lately? Yeah, I've been watching a few things, but uh, the, the new series that I've been enjoying watching is called Plain Resurrection. Uh, and it's a it's a great one for lovers of history. It's people who take historical aircraft, uh, and they'll find a specific aircraft, and they restore that aircraft. So it'll be an episode about an hour long, and you hear uh, about the history of that particular aircraft, the history of the people that were involved with that aircraft, the history of that aircraft model as well, and the the whole process of how they take a particular aircraft that they found that, that needs to be restored and restore that back to working order. So everyone's something completely different, and they are all very compelling stories. It's one of those, uh, it's been very fun to watch, and I, I can't wait for the next episode, yeah. You know, I was watching something really not not that much related however it does have to do with flying <laughs> i watched an, uh, a really a cool documentary on the peregrine falcon and to be honest i was learning more about the peregrine falcon i thought i knew something about it because if you've heard of the peregrine falcon you know it's really really fast that's its whole thing we've recorded them going like 240 miles an hour um it turns out that they are the most common raptor globally uh, they they are on every con continent except Antarctica, and they are apparently just incredibly successful hunters, and they will nest in trees, on cliffs, on the ground, depending on where they're at. They're just an incredibly versatile animal. It is everything you watch is, is unique and interesting. you got to love that about Magellan TV is that uh, if you like nature documentaries, there's nature documentaries. If you like history documentaries, there's history. If you like science, there's science. There's just so much here, and everything you run into is is fascinating. So you're right. I mean, there's there's uh, there's so many animals that are so interesting and so unique, and, and Magellan TV has some fantastic shows where you really find out about things in, in a detail you never would have guessed. We always have a special offer for listeners of the History Guide to Magellan TV. If you go to 
trymagellantv.com slash history guy. There's always going to be an awesome deal there for you. I think right now it's it's like 30% off an annual membership, and that's just a really great deal. It's not, doesn't cost you a whole lot. It is going to give you an incredible amount of awesome content. Yeah, if, if you love the History Guy, you will, you will love Magellan TV. www.try.magellantv.com slash History Guy. Next, the History Guy is going to talk about the discovery of the Okapi, one of the true wonders of the 20th century. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. Philip Henry Goss was a naturalist who helped to popularize the natural sciences. He's credited with coining the term aquarium and stocked the first public aquarium in the London Zoo in 1853. In 1860, he wrote a book called The Romance of Natural History, where he noted that many new mammal species had been discovered in the 19th century and speculated that more were yet to come. That speculation would inspire a famous explorer, artist, and colonial administrator, and in 1901, that inspiration would lead to one of the most extraordinary events of the 20th century. The discovery of a large mammal, some of which can be more than 700 pounds, previously unknown to science. It is a story of a mystery, and one scientist's determination to solve that mystery that takes us to the deepest parts of darkest Africa to find one of the world's most unique species. It is a story that deserves to be remembered. Henry Hamilton Johnston was born in Kennington Park, South London, in 1858. It isn't clear exactly when Harry Johnston read Goss's The Romance of Natural History, but was part of what spurred his interest in animals, especially Goss's chapter on the unknown, where Goss asked, what may we not expect of the vast, the uncouth, the terrible of the creatures which may yet lurk unsuspected in the teeming wilds of Central Africa? And Goss then went on to make an astounding assertion. It is highly probable, Goss speculated, that an animal of ancient renown, and one in which England has a peculiar interest, resides in the region just indicated. I refer to one of the supporters of Britain's shield, the famed unicorn. Goss's justification for that wild speculation was that various European scientists had heard accounts of a horned, horse-like creature living in Central Africa. Goss's description enthralled Johnston and inspired his imagination. As a young man, he developed an interest in natural history and a talent for art, and that led him down a unique career path, taking commissions from scientists to do drawings to illustrate their scientific books and papers. Johnston studied languages at King's College, and his passions led him to travel, where he often accompanied and later led expeditions using his artistic skills to capture the expedition's discoveries in an age when photography was rare. He developed a reputation as an explorer and as a scientist, but also concluded treaties and was a central figure in negotiating European spheres of influence on the African continent in the 19th century. In 1883, his travels allowed him to meet the famed explorer Henry Morton Stanley, the explorer who had famously tracked down the missing Dr. David Livingston in 1871. Stanley would later play a role in Johnson's most famous discovery. In 1888, Stanley published a book called In Darkest Africa. The book was Stanley's account of the disastrous mission to relieve Emin Pasha that is the topic of another episode of Five Minutes of History. 
In the book, Stanley makes an account of African pygmies, a reference to a diminutive peoples of Central Africa, from tribes such as the Aka, Efe, and Mabuti, where adult men are on average less than 150 centimeters, or 4 foot 11 inches tall. While Stanley was not, in fact, the first European to encounter the Pygmy peoples, he noted something unique in a footnote to his book. The Pygmies that he encountered mentioned an otherwise unknown sort of African donkey or zebra that lived in the dense forests of Central Africa that they called the Atti. As there would be no grassland there on which a horse could forage, Stanley speculated that the animal must survive by foraging on leaves. This account confounded Johnston. Wild horses of all types lived on the plains, and none fed upon leaves. Could these be the unicorns to which Goss had alluded in 1860? Johnston wrote in a magazine article that he determined to make further inquiries on the subject whenever fate should lead me in the direction of the great Congo forest. Fate would lead him there in 1899, when Johnston was sent to the British Protectorate of Uganda to negotiate an end to ongoing conflict with local chiefs. It was there that Harry Johnston would make his first encounter with the Pygmy peoples. A German across the border in the Belgian Congo had kidnapped some Pygmies, apparently intent upon taking them to Europe to exhibit them. He had been chased by Belgian authorities, but had escaped into British Uganda. The Belgian authorities appealed to Johnston, who had the man arrested. The German was tried and required to pay a fine. The Pygmies were released into Harry Johnston's custody. Johnston promised to return the kidnapped natives, members of the Wambuti tribe, back to their own lands. But while they were with him, he took the opportunity to talk to them about the Atti that Livingston had mentioned. To Johnston's joy, the Wambuti were familiar with the animal, which they described as being striped like a zebra but having a solid brown upper body. And most surprisingly, they said that the animal had more than one hoof. That was telling to Johnston, because if the animal indeed had cloven hooves, it could not be a horse, since all modern horses' hooves are a single piece. Could it be, he thought, a remnant of ancient horses, long thought to be extinct, who had toes on their feet? That would be an amazing discovery indeed. On the expedition to return the natives to their homes, Johnston met some Belgian officers, who told him that some of their native troops had recently killed an Ati. Johnston was able to procure from them two bandoliers, straps that are used to carry ammunition, that had been made from the animal's skin. They were indeed striped like a zebra, but little more could be determined from these small strips of hide. On the way, the Wambuti pointed out tracks, and Johnston was surprised to find that they were neither the tracks of a single-hoofed horse nor of a toad horse ancestor, but the cloven hooves of an antelope. He thought that the tracks must be from something else, one of many forest antelope. That was, though, as close as he got. After returning the Wambuti to their homes, the expedition was struck by malaria and had to return to Uganda. But the Belgian officers remembered his interest. The next time their native soldiers killed one of the animals, they sent the skin and skull to Johnston. And from those, Johnston concluded that, that the find was even more astounding than he imagined. The animal was neither a horse nor a unicorn. It was, rather obviously, a type of giraffe. The animal species that he discovered, officially recognized in 1901 as Okapia Johnstoni, 
was the okapi, a forest-living relative of the giraffe. That was an amazing discovery, as the giraffe was thought to be the last surviving member of the giraffidae family, and no other species of that family had been thought to exist since the Miocene epoch, which ended more than five million years ago. The okapi has been described as one of the most unique large mammals on Earth, and it was the last major mammal to be discovered on the continent of Africa. It is related to the giraffe, but the relationship is very distant, with a 2016 study determining that the closest common ancestor between the two goes back more than 11.5 million years. The okapi is sometimes included among the small class of creatures that are called living fossils, because its closest relative exists only in the fossil record, and it is very similar to Samotherium, a giraffid that is only known to have lived during the Miocene epoch. A shy and solitary creature, it is by some accounts the ninth rarest creature on Earth, with less than 20,000 thought to exist in the wild. Its solitary nature, well-developed camouflage, and range in some of the most remote and inaccessible parts of the Earth kept it from the eyes of science clear until the 20th century. Today, the okapi is threatened by habitat destruction and poaching. While it is protected by law, its range in the Ituri Forest of the Democratic Republic of the Congo is an area of political instability and violence. In 2012, poachers, upset that rangers of the Okapi Wildlife Reserve were preventing them poaching elephants, took over the headquarters of the reserve, murdered six guards and civilians, and slaughtered 13 Okapi that were kept there as part of a breeding program. But the okapi does do well in captivity, and while still rare, can be seen in many zoos around the world, where they maintain a reserve population to keep the species from going extinct. Sir Harry Johnston wrote more than a dozen books about his adventures as an explorer, artist, and colonial administrator in Africa. And while he displayed many of the paternalistic attitudes of Europeans towards native Africans of his time, he was one of few colonial administrators who argued that colonial administrations should get to know the culture of the subjugated peoples, and was one of the first colonial administrators to employ native Africans in colonial service as clerks and skilled staff. He passed away in 1927, with perhaps his most memorable accomplishment being the extraordinary creature that bears his name, the unicorn that he had sought since childhood, the rare and beautiful Okapia Johnstoney. This story has a special place in my heart because it involves one of my very favorite animals, the Okapi. It's absolutely beautiful, and I've always loved giraffes since I was a kid. And the okapi is closely, fairly closely related, sometimes even called a forest giraffe, even though it does not look much like a giraffe. If there are okapi in a zoo, that you can bet that that's going to be one of the first places I'll go to. That one I'm not going to miss. And I think I recall you telling me at least something about this story when I was young, because we used to we used to go to a lot of zoos, and I, I think that might be part of why I was so interested in them. Yeah, you know, I got my love of history from my dad, and I think that you maybe got some of yours from your dad. And uh, we did used to go. To, we had zoo rules. Remember, this? one of the zoo rules was you can't ride the train. You got to walk. I do remember that. Uh, and you got to see the whole zoo, which sometimes would wear you guys I out. I also remember no. There's no. There's no crying at no zoos. No crying at zoos. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that worked for us, but that's a good rule to set up and see how that goes. We we got to see a lot of zoo, and we had a lot of fun. And okapis are just unique animals, and it's it's fun because if there's an okapi at the zoo, then you like you have to track down the okapi is a great way to go see 
the rest of the zoo. Yeah, yeah and they are they are a giraffe, but they're uh, very distantly really related to giraffes. So the common ancestor goes so far back. They're just a really unique creature that survived in a really unique environment for a very long period of time. The episode was very fun to write. Was very fun to study because uh, it's it was such a mystery. Uh, and again, like any of these uh, cryptids, you know, uh, the, the natives know what they are. They're, you know, killing them and eating them. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the, you know, the Europeans, uh, the, the Westerners, you know, like, it's unknown to Western science and we got to name it after ourselves. Uh, but uh, in this case, uh, the person that was uh, looking for it, you know, is a really interesting guy who has a really interesting history and has a big heart in terms of why he's looking for this animal. And, and uh, so uh, Sir Harry Johnston. So it, it, again, it makes this incredible story, uh, how he sought it and how he uncovered it and what he found in and how it was something so completely different than they thought it must be. Uh, and that makes for an incredible story. And it's uh, unlike uh, with the, the, the Milu, with the Pear David steer now, of course, the concern is that it could very well go extinct. It's still a rare animal. It lives in a part of the world where there's a lot of violence uh, and ongoing violence that makes it difficult to protect. And it's something that we all have to consider. But on the other hand, kind of like the Milu, you can find them in zoos now. And those zoo populations mean that it's probably going to survive. And that's, uh, you know, just something that otherwise could have been gone and lost yeah. to it, history. And again, such a such an incredible, you know, bizarre, I mean, it's painted three different. It looks like there's three different paintbrushes going on, you know, with its head and its chest and its back and looks like a zebra. Uh, and it, it's just a, it's a cool, interesting animal. It's a cool, interesting habitat. And it's a cool, interesting story how they found the animal and how we how we learned the natural history of the animal. And then that goes to the modern history of the animal, which comes down to, you know, what can we do to make sure that uh, that kids can go to zoos and seal copies, yeah. you know, well into the future. Because when I mean, we have it in zoos, but it's threatened in its native habitat. And because of, I mean, the Congo is just not a particularly stable place. It's, it's not, and the, the game wardens, because poaching can be uh, profitable, yeah. the game wardens uh, are always at risk. Uh, the wardens that were killed and the Okapi that were killed at the Okapi Center, uh, that was actually people that were upset that they were preventing hunting of elephants. Uh, and then, the, you know, the Okapi gets caught in the middle of that and, and uh, the, you know, of a population that's so small that they killed the breeding stock there, which is tragic. Animals live out in the world and violence goes on in the world. And when you're worrying about violence between humans, you know, it's very difficult to try to preserve yeah. an animal in the middle of that. Uh, and so it's it's a terrifying story that it survives so long, uh, and then after we discover it, uh, you know it you know it could go extinct, yeah. uh, and that's you know that's not a, a singular story. There are other stories of things like that that we we did an episode fairly recently on the coelacanth. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it for millions of years lived at the bottom of the ocean. We thought it was totally gone. Well, now that we found it, uh, there's a concern that the animal or the the fish might be being poached, uh, and. Uh, yeah. That's you know that's it's terrifying to think that because you'd rediscover it that that would you know, that would put an because this it. I mean the okapi was famously hard to find famously hard to find yeah all these rumors and and they suspected well this has got to be an antelope or this has got to be uh, uh, you know this, he had, you know had no idea what and no one no one suspected that it could be a giraffe that was just not on anybody's list you know whether it was horse like or whether it was antelope like was the question and what they found was neither and that's that's just yeah. an amazing story and it's and I did want to you know you mentioned that. It attack uh that was that attack was actually on a, a place that was run by the okapi conservant conservation project and i mean we're, we're a history channel you know we're not 
necessarily here to be preachy or anything like that. But if you if you are looking for a place to support, uh, the Okapi Conservation Project still exists, and they've been working since 1987 to try to help keep these guys around. So you can always go check that out. We have uh, we have a lot of episodes where there are things that come down to touch to what you, what can you do today, and and uh, that's a that's a great example of one. And yeah, I I think the animal is extraordinary, and I think we want to keep uh, it going into the future yeah. so that it's it's history continues. And it's I think both of these animals a little bit. And this is a little bit of a stranger note, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go there. Uh, we've talked about cryptozoology a little bit, and I think you and I have done so, you know, off camera. Uh, the Okapi always makes me weirdly hopeful that there could be a different kind of large mammal hiding someplace. That if it was sh- as as shy, or maybe perhaps even you know more shy than the Okapi, and so not to not to be too fringe, but it gives me hope in Bigfoot. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> every other podcast is a yeah, big podcast, so why not make well, ours a big podcast? At least, podcast? and you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I necessarily believe or don't, but it does make me wonder. I mean, it doesn't seem impossible. It, the copy is a story that says that, that things that seem like they should be impossible turn out to be possible. Uh, and that's that's a good story. And it, this rolled into the you know the twentieth yeah. century. That's an extraordinary story too. But I mean, you know, uh, it's a different. I mean, it's a, you know, Bigfoot's a different it question. Is. But are there still even large mammals to discover? And I, you know, I think that there probably are. I think they're going to continue to be discoveries, uh, and I, I they might be great stories like they are with the Okapi. Yeah, I'm still looking out my window for a Washington's eagle. I still hope that there's going to be a Washington's eagle on my porch one day, and I'm just going to come up and say, "Oh, there you are." Uh, and so. Uh, I own a, a piece of woods out back my house, and uh, uh, it's not it's not big. It's not even a half acre, but I mean it's it's woodlands back there. Boy, if you're back there, you feel like you're stuck in the middle of nowhere. And every once in a while, we hear a noise back there that makes me wonder what could that possibly be. And I think it's that Bigfoot, you know, back there <laughs> hanging out in uh, the half. If he was, you know, he I don't know how a Bigfoot's feeding himself off of you know Southern <laughs> Illinois, but <laughs> and I've learned that a squirrel can make so much noise that it seems like it's a 500 pound animal. That they they can be amazingly you know uh, noisy little critters it's funny because you just you know you really don't you, you don't have to go far into the woods to say something could live here and we wouldn't know it was yeah. here uh, and that's the story of the okapi and you know whether what you, ever you want to think of in terms of cryptid you know it might be just an undiscovered bovine it might be something that's familiar to native populations but not familiar to western science i think that there are still i think there's still species who get to have names on them like okapi johnstoney did yeah and there's and we've seen some interesting ones come up even recently but we will I'm going to keep my ear to the ground. If someone does discover Bigfoot, uh, I'll be really excited to hear about it. That's my... I will, too. <laughs> I mean, the Bigfoot show, there's a lot of Bigfoot shows out there. And the, the, the issue with a Bigfoot show is if they discover Bigfoot, everybody's going to mention it before the episode. <laughs> yeah, no one's going to know. <laughs> yeah, when you're watching the episode, you know they're not going to find Bigfoot because if they found Bigfoot, it would have Yeah, they the wouldn't news. have kept That's that secret the... until the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So if they're like, in the tension, is Bigfoot going to show up? I'm like, pretty sure not, because uh, we'd have known by now uh, if Bigfoot did. So, yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history. And if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.